Good morning. Today we are finishing our series, Your Story at Work. Uh, We began talking about how work is a calling, not a curse. And by the way, when we talk about work, we're talking about all the work you do, not just what you get paid to do, not just your quote-unquote career, but we're talking about the work you do in school when you're a student, your homework, your, your classwork, your assignments. We're talking about uh, the chores you do around the house or when your kids are little, you're keep taking care of them, changing their diapers and, and making sure they get to school on time. We're talking about later on in life when you take care of an elderly spouse or parent or relative, uh, volunteering, anything you do that is work is a calling from God. It's an opportunity to serve Him. Uh, the second week we talked about how work is an opportunity for a testimony to others. Last week, Alan talked about how we have an opportunity to verbally share our, our faith, and, and we can earn the right to do that on the job by how we behave, by how we do our work. But that second week, I talked about how just the quality of your work itself testifies to who God is, His diligence, His excellence, His graciousness. And today, we're going to talk about managing people. So if you work long enough, eventually most of us will be in a position where we supervise someone. We oversee a certain group of people, maybe even run an entire company. And even if you never get to that point, all of us uh, from time to time are in a position where we have people serving us. And it could, it could be as simple as the guy who cuts your hair or the waitress who brings you your burger today at lunch or the nurse at your doctor's office who draws your blood and weighs you and takes your temperature, or the the young woman who teaches your child. All of these people are in a position, and, and others I could name, are in a position where they are serving you, they are meeting your needs, and the way you treat them just like the way a CEO treats his employees, just like a manager uh, on a work site, the way he treats his workers. The way you treat these people matters intensely to God. And it speaks to the world, it speaks to your employees and everyone watching of who God is. So we're going to start with our two scriptures, Ephesians 6 verse 9 and Colossians 4 1. Both very similar verses, both written by the Apostle Paul. He writes in Ephesians 6, 9, Brothers, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And then Colossians 4, 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, these are unusual texts because you can probably see they're written to slave masters. Why would I choose these texts? And first of all, why are those texts actually in Scripture? We'll get into that in just a second. One thing you need to understand is when Paul was writing these these letters to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, he was living in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, about 40% of the population of the empire were slaves. So whereas you and I think in terms of Uh, employer and employee, boss and worker, that relationship existed back then, but it was much less common than the relationship of master to slave. Most people who had people working under them were slave masters, not what you and I would consider bosses. And so that's why Paul addresses them that way. And, And you and I can look at the instructions he gave to slaves, like 
Alan used last week and say, okay, that applies to me in my, in my work as an employee in my company. And his instructions today to slave masters apply to us as employers today and as people who have those serving under us. So before I get into my real subject, which is what does God say to us when we supervise others, I need to take a detour because the real question that a lot of us have, the very important question is, does this mean that the Bible is endorsing slavery? I think we can all agree that the transatlantic slave trade is pretty much the worst moment in American history. I love this country. This, in my opinion, is the greatest country in the history of the world. I'm thankful to be a part of it. It's made the world a better place. And yet, and yet, this is a stain on our history. If I could go back in time and I could stand in front of the founding fathers and say, okay, just abolish slavery from the get-go. Trust me on this one. Or even go back even further to the first settlers who arrived on the shores of our nation 150 years before the Revolutionary War and, and just say, don't even start importing slaves to this country. Don't even make that a part of your lives. It, it's, if you do, it's going to be something that's going to haunt us for centuries to come. I think no matter where we stand politically, we all agree on that. And yet we have to acknowledge that while slavery was legal in this country, there were people, including some who were sincere Christians, who used Scripture to justify that institution, to say, okay, look, God talks to slave owners, God addresses slavery, and therefore he endorses it. And that today, not only did that prop up an evil and unjust system, today that is a, a truth that causes some people to reject the Christian faith. That is something that causes some people who are skeptics of our faith to say, how can you believe the Bible when the Bible endorses slavery? So that's the question that I need to detour into before I get into how we treat people who work under us. And that is, are they right? Does the Bible really endorse slavery? So let me just share a few comments with you very quickly. First of all, when the earliest books of Scripture were written, Slavery was a universal practice across all people groups and nations. It wasn't the kind of slavery we had in this country. It wasn't racially based. It wasn't all focused on one ethnic group. It was, it was more of an economic reality than anything else. Uh, you could become a slave by being captured in war, but you could also become a slave, and this was the case with a lot of people in Israel, because it was just economically more viable for you. In other words, you couldn't make it work as a farmer. You couldn't make it work as a merchant. And so you sold yourself to your neighbor, your neighbor who was doing better than you. And you said, I'll work for you. You provide me with food and clothing and shelter. And, and so when the, the constitution of Israel was being written, which we know is the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, God addresses slavery. And he says things like, Remember, you too, Israelites, you were slaves once too. Remember how cruelly you were treated. Be different. He, he says, if, if you've got a foreign-born slave, you treat him the way you would treat an Israelite, which is a revolutionary concept in its time. It, slaves in Israel were to be set free after six years unless they wanted to stay, which implies some of them would want to stay because it was more advantageous for them to do so. And then when you get into the New Testament, Paul is writing to slaves and he, he addresses them often. And you might notice, in fact, you might have noticed last week it, that the scriptures that Alan used written to slaves were longer than the scriptures written to slave owners. Why is that? Well, because within the New Testament churches, 
there were a lot more slaves than there were masters. And in fact, that was an accusation that critics in the early church leveled against Christianity. Why would I want to be a Christian? That's a religion for women and slaves, which ought to make us ask, why were so many women and so many slaves attracted to Christianity? Well, the answer is obvious. As Paul says in Galatians, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Christianity was the only place where women and slaves in the ancient world could find equality, could find justice, could find uh, true humanity. They served, after all, a Savior who was God in human flesh and yet came down and took on the form of a servant. He identified with them in a way that no human being ever had or ever would. And so Paul wrote to slaves and told them, here's how you should live. Here's how you should demonstrate your Christ-likeness and and the truth of the gospel. And it all culminates in the book of Philemon. Philemon is one of the shortest books of the Bible. It's just one chapter. It's a letter from Paul to a wealthy friend where he says, hey, Philemon, why don't you let your slave go free? Why don't you treat him as a brother and not a slave? And so I can, I can say two definitive things about the subject of Christianity and slavery, the Bible and slavery. Number one, wherever in Scripture the Bible addresses the subject of slavery, it was making the lives of slaves better than they were. And the second thing I can say is the Bible planted the seeds that led to abolition, which is why when you look at our nation's history and the history of England, you see that the men and women who were the most passionate, the most courageous, the most effective at overturning the system of slavery, they were devout Christians. Frederick Douglass, William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, uh, Julia Ward Howe. You go down the list, William Lloyd Garrison. These were all devout Christians who were led by the Spirit of God who used Scripture to argue for the end of this unjust system. So the Bible does not endorse slavery. In fact, the Bible overturns slavery. And somebody might say, well, why doesn't the Bible just say slaves set your masters free or masters set your slaves free or even more slaves rise up and and escape and go free? Well, we don't know. My guess is that Paul and the other apostles knew that if they advocated for the end of slavery in a system where 40% of society were slaves, it would result in economic bankruptcy and maybe even violence. Uh, That's a guess. I do believe what Paul, his true motive was, was he said, I'm going to plant the seeds. I'm going to just take for granted that as the kingdom of God spreads, slavery will come to an end. He knew it was an unjust system. He knew it was an evil thing. And as the kingdom of God spreads, it will end. And it did. It's just that we as American and English Christians lost sight of that and disobeyed his word and it cost us. So that's my little detour. So let's come back to the point. Paul's instructions, led by the Holy Spirit, to slave masters in the first century really apply to us whenever we have someone serving under us, whether we are paying them or whether they're volunteering for us. So what is the command? In both of these scriptures, Ephesians 6, 9 and 4, 1, it all comes down to this one principle. And the principle is this, you have a master too. You have a boss too, a boss in heaven. And here's, here's the real thing. He doesn't play favorites. 
In other words, you may run a company, and in that company, you may have founded that company. You may be the the one head of the organization. And so you set the tone. You can do whatever you want. If you mistreat your employees, if you abuse your employees, if you dehumanize them, if you cheat them, nobody's going to hold you accountable. Oh, yeah? Maybe not anybody in this world, but God sees. God knows. And he's not going to play favorites when it comes to heaven. That, That person that you mistreated is just as important to him as you are. And you're going to have to answer to him someday. Whenever I read this, I think of uh, something that happened years ago, something I observed. I, I went to a, a little league baseball game because a kid in my church was playing and I was sitting with this kid's parents and I'm talking seven-year-old boys, seven or eight-year-old kids. So little guys. And there was a close play at the plate in this game. And the umpire was a 16-year-old guy, just a high school kid. And he called the runner out. And the fans went nuts. The, the parents, I should say. They weren't really fans. They were parents. Parents went nuts. How can you call him out? It's so obvious he was safe. And one guy even got out of the stands and walked down to the chain link fence that was the backstop that separated the, the outside from the playing field. And he's having this loud animated conversation with the umpire. And then he turns and he looks at the stands and says, oh, now he says he didn't really see it. And everybody really lost it at that point. And I was just sitting there. I mean, I was with people from my church, so I couldn't really speak up, but I was getting angry thinking, first of all, this is a game with seven-year-old kids. Second of all, this is a 16-year-old trying to do his best to call a game, and you're giving him this kind of grief, like it's the seventh game of the World Series. And it bothered me for days after, and I have to confess, I had this little fantasy that in the middle of all of that, a guy would come walking up to the guy who was standing at the backstop arguing with the, uh, with the umpire, and a guy would walk up and tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm, I'm that kid's dad. And in my fantasy, the dad was six foot eight and had arms like tree trunks. And he would say, yeah, that's my son over there. How about you and me, friend? We go over into the woods and you explain to me in more detail the problem you have with my son's officiating of this game. I would have paid to see that. And I think all of us would have the same reaction, all of us who are sane and morally decent people. And yet understand this, every time you have someone in a position of service to you, and you treat them as if they don't matter, and you treat them as if their humanity is not important, they have a father who's in heaven, who loves them, who crafted them in their mother's womb, who died for them, who wants great things for them, and they take it, he takes it very seriously how you treat them. That is the principle of Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 4.1. You have a boss in heaven too, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, I know the objection. I know people right now are saying to themselves, yeah, Jeff, I get it. I get it, but I've got a business to run, and I, I can't be a Sunday school teacher and a boss. I have to be, I have to get the job done. I have to make this company run. I get that. Uh, I get people who say, if you're tough, you get run over. If you're a nice guy, you get finished, you finish in last place. You have to break some eggs to make an omelet. I get all of that. Listen, I've had to have difficult conversations with people I supervise too. I've had to say hard things to people. I've had to confront. I've had to rebuke. I understand. You can't be uh, Mr. Rogers and run a company. I understand. So where is the line between 
I have to treat this person as a child of God and I have to treat them as their behavior requires. Where's the line there? I think the line is what we see in Jesus. Isn't that always the answer? What we see in Jesus and how he treated his disciples. Jesus ran the most important organization of all time. He had 12 key employees, you might say, his 12 disciples. And whole books have been written about how he managed those 12 men and, and how, he, uh, how he led them. But I, I want to sum up, with the time I have left, his management of those, three, of those 12 people in three points. Three things we see in Jesus and, and how he treated those under him, how he managed his workers. Number one, Jesus was the undisputed boss. There was absolutely no question. And this is one of the things that people who read the Gospels for the first time, it strikes them and surprises them is that Jesus wasn't sometimes all that nice. Jesus was harsh at times. When his disciples got it wrong, he corrected them and he wasn't worried about their feelings. He corrected them harshly at times. When they sinned, he rebuked them. He called their sin, sin. He didn't call it a little mistake here or there. Uh, He once said to them, and this is a quote from the Gospels, are you so dull? I picture him smacking his forehead and saying, don't you understand anything? I've been with you so long and you still don't get it. Uh, He said, how long must I put up with you? If you've ever been a boss, you've probably said those words. Jesus said them too. We all know the story of him telling Peter, his best friend, by the way, get thee behind me, Satan. And we've said that and it's become a cliche for us. We forget what weight those words held. Jesus was calling Peter, the one who considered himself the chief of the apostles, no, you're, you're actually the devil right now. You're actually taking the side of evil. You're actually standing in the way of good. So Jesus was the undisputed boss. I had a friend and church member years ago who was the manager of a machine shop in a metalworking company. And I would talk to him about his job. I knew nothing about metalwork or what it was to run a machine shop. And one day I asked him, so how's it going at work? And he told me a story. He said, well, I realized a while ago that my employees were slacking off. And, and there were chairs in the machine shop where they would go and sit when it was time for a break or when it was time for lunch. And uh, I I realized I would walk through the machine shop and guys were sitting around instead of working. And so I took all the chairs out. No more chairs. Even on your break, you got to stand. And then I came back a week later and they had found those chairs, these just hard plastic chairs, and they had brought them back. And so without a word, he drove a forklift into the machine shop and scooped up every one of the chairs and stacked them in a pile and then used the front end loader to just smash those chairs to bits. And and he wasn't angry. He wasn't yelling or cussing or humiliating him. He's just saying, okay, here's the consequences. There's no more chairs. And he's telling me this story and my jaw is dropping because this guy is a friend of mine and he's always been nothing but gentle and kind and humble and kind of guy give the shirt off his back. And it, it hit me sometimes you have to be tough. Sometimes you have to be firm. There's nothing unchristlike about saying, I'm the boss, I have to make a decision, there are consequences. Second thing we see in Jesus and how he treated his disciples, he gave them meaningful assignments, but he also gave them the tools they needed to get the job done. See, there's nothing more frustrating than having a boss who won't really give you clear instructions. You show up for work and you don't know what he expects of you. 
Or if your boss does all the important work himself and leaves you with nothing but the menial, thankless, skillless labor. Or even worse, he gives you assignments, but he doesn't train you. And then when you fail, he yells at you, he humiliates you, he dehumanizes you. When I was 16, I had my first real paying job. I mean, I'd hauled hay for my uncle or helped my grandpa, you know, feed the cows and, and gotten 10 bucks or 20 bucks here or there. This was the first time I earned a paycheck and it was working in a butcher shop, the meat market of a grocery store in my hometown. And I've told you some stories about this in the past, but um, the boss there, the man who ran the butcher shop, he didn't really take a lot of time to train his employees. And I understand. I mean, I was 16 years old and however dumb you think a 16 year old boy was, I was all of that and more. I understand he didn't have time to mess with us, but it got frustrating. So here's a scenario that might happen in a typical workday. Uh, a little old lady comes in and says, okay, I need two pounds of hamburger meat and a pound and a half of pork chops. And I'm sitting there going, okay, does she want this hamburger meat or this? Does she want, okay, are those pork chops or are those T-bones? I, I didn't know what I was doing. And rather than train me, he'd swoop in and say, ma'am, is this dumb old boy not helping you? Let me, let me take care of you myself. So I never really got trained. I actually didn't last very long in that job. I quit after about four weeks or was fired, depending on who you talk to. And I really, in those times, in, that, in those four weeks, I, I didn't really learn that much about meat, but I learned a lot about how not to manage people. I learned, I learned that you have to give people the equipment they need to succeed. And Jesus did that. Jesus didn't just tell his disciples things. He didn't just say, okay, watch what I do and you do it. Jesus actually sent his disciples out on assignment. There's a moment when he sends the 12 out and says, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, and he places his spirit upon them. After he's given them this impossible task, he gives them the spiritual power to accomplish it. And they come back and they're thrilled. They say, Lord, even the demons fled from us. And then later, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says, my spirit is going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses all around the world. And it came true a few days later, just 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, gave them the, assign gave them the, the power they needed to accomplish Jesus's mission in the world. Now, you and I don't have that kind of spiritual power. I can't just lay my hands on you and say, okay, now you have the ability to do everything I've asked you to do. But I can take time to mentor you, to instruct you, to walk you through things and, and, and observe you and critique you. And when you fail, not to bully you or humiliate you, but use it as a teachable moment. I, I have the ability as a supervisor to help equip you to do your job. And that's part of being a good boss. That's what Jesus did. And then there's number three. To Jesus, his workers were just as important as his mission. See, those first two those first two are basically Management 101. You'd read them, I'm sure, in any elementary management textbook. But this third one, it's more distinctively Christian. Jesus, Jesus saw his workers as being just as important as his mission. And every organization has a mission. Your, your company's mission may be to serve people food or to uh, build commercial buildings or to take care of people's yards or to, or, or to educate children. You, you may run an organization that creates widgets or uh, programs computers. You have a mission. The mission of Jesus's company 
was the most important mission of all time. It was to literally save the world. It was to literally defeat evil. Now think about this for a moment. Let me backtrack. Your company has a mission, and if you are one of the people in charge, you are so caught up in accomplishing that mission, it's very tempting to see your employees as just cogs in the wheel, as just tools you use to get to the accomplishing of your purpose. And that's, that's why you hear stories of Christians who are exemplary people in the eyes of their church members. Oh, he's a deacon, he's, he's a generous person, he's a, he's a life group leader, uh, he's just such a good and kind man, and yet the people who work for him see him completely differently. They see him as a tyrant, they see him as a selfish person, they see him as an abuser. How can that be? It's because that person has, ha, has not learned to integrate love your neighbor as yourself into his work life. He's not learned to integrate his faith in Jesus into his mission uh, of leading an organization. And I've seen it in churches. I've seen people who said, oh, hey, I'm going to go to work for this guy who's a member of my church. He's going to be my boss now. Isn't that going to be great? And then six months later, he's quit the organization and they never speak to each other again because he's seen a different side of that church member. Being his employee shows you the real person, the real him is not who I thought he was. And that should never be. So let me go back to what I was saying. Jesus led the most important organization in history. His mission, the mission of the church was and is to rescue the world, to defeat evil once and for all, to usher in the coming age of of a new earth and a new heaven. And yet, with the most important mission in the world, in the history of the world on his shoulders, he took time to invest in every single one of his 12 and beyond. I mean, how many times did Jesus leave behind crowds of thousands to get away in the wilderness with just his 12 friends and pour into their lives. To him, he wasn't just building a movement, he was building people. And he took the time to invest in every single one of them. See, if you run a company, if you supervise employees, years from now, the people who worked for you, they're going to look back on working for you and they're going to have a story to tell. What is it going to be? Is it going to be, yeah, that guy was a completely different person at church than he was on the job? Is it going to be, boy, you never want to work for her. She is the worst boss ever. Or is it going to be, her relationship wasn't always great. There were times she had to get on me. There were times he had to, he had to be firm with me. But I'm a better person, not just a better worker. I'm a better human because he cared about me. She invested in me. See, the, John 13 tells us the story of the night before Jesus died. He's just about to be arrested. He's having Passover dinner with his disciples, the last meal he'll have with them. And he takes the time to take off his shirt, wrap a towel around his waist, get down on his hands and knees, and wash the feet of his 12 employees. And you've heard lots of sermons by better preachers than me about, about how humbling that was for Jesus, how the Son of God became like a slave. Yeah, that's true. You've also heard that this was an act of extreme thoughtfulness in a world where uh, there were no paved roads and everyone wore wore open-toed shoes. To have someone wash your feet was an incredible gift. But it was also a sign. It was Jesus saying, 
you know, you're not just as important to me as my mission. You're more important to me than me, than my feelings, my dignity, my reputation, my needs. I am placing you ahead of me. I love you. And then he said, go and do likewise. Now, there's a reason why for for the last 2,000 years, most Christians, including people in the early church, knew that Jesus didn't mean literally we should be washing everybody's feet week to week. I mean, I don't want any of you touching my feet. These days when we wear socks and shoes, that's not really an act of consideration. That's an act of weirdness or awkwardness. What Jesus was saying was, make sure, make sure that that person next to you knows that you love them, that there's no doubt in their mind that they come before you. And that includes us towards those we supervise. The people who work for us, even though sometimes we have to be harsh with them, even though from time to time we may have to let some of them go, they should know that person loves me, loves me with the love of Jesus Christ. Is that true? Is that how the people who work for you feel? Is that how uh, the waitress who brings you your burger feels every week when you come in? Is that how the nurse at your doctor's office feels or the teacher of your child or the guy who cuts your hair? Do they know they're loved by you? See, every one of us is a worker in God's company. We serve in the field of God. We build the building of God. And here's what he's done for us, his employees. He's offered us the ultimate sign of love. He died in our place. He defeated our undefeatable enemy. He paid our unpayable debt. He's made us more than workers. Now we're sons and daughters of the king. You have a master in heaven. And that master is also your savior, the one who loves you more than anybody will ever love you and ever has. He's a master who paid the price to set you free. You owe him everything. And there's no way you can ever pay him back or should even try. And yet every time we show love to someone else, especially someone we don't have to love, especially someone who serves us, that is a huge way to say to Jesus, thank you. You loved me, now I will love them. Isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth our time?